a message series that we are doing called Common Threads. And and this is a series that we're just going to run with for a few weeks here that uses passages that come from the Revised Common Lectionary. If you're not familiar with what that is, the, the lectionary is a collection of Bible readings for every week. And there's a passage that comes from the Old Testament, a passage from the New Testament, a psalm, and something from the Gospels. And what we're doing through that is we're, we're looking for common threads. Some of those themes that jump out of Scripture that are woven all throughout the words of the Bible. So as we do that and we read these passages, we're not, we're not going to do this in maybe the typical Sunday sermon kind of a way where, you know, I take just one passage and we get really close in looking at the details of explaining all the features of that one passage. We're going to kind of bounce over the top of these because we're reading a little bit more scripture than usual that I bring to a Sunday message. But here's the point. Here's the point that that we're simply going to let the word of God speak for itself. Let's just let God speak to us through his word, reading these passages and asking the simple question, what is God saying through this? The reason we're doing that is this, because there are times when when I meet with people in particular and we talk about what goes on in their life, what's going on in the world, all the things that are happening around us, and, and sometimes I ask the question in that, so what do you think God is saying to you right now? More than once, I get a little bit of a blank stare back from that question. What is God saying to me right now? I'm not quite sure. It's a question we all face, though. Where is God showing up in our world, in our lives? What is he saying to us? The answer to that always begins with Scripture. That God reveals himself and speaks to us in Scripture. So we're just doing this series over these few weeks just to get a little bit of that idea of reading Scripture simply to let God speak and see what he has to say to us bringing those passages from the lectionary that we have this week. So uh, you have in your bulletin the Luke passages written there, but but I'm actually reading three passages today, and I'm going to begin with the Old Testament prophet Hosea and read through some of that. And and I'm going to stop along the way as we go through these so that I can note a few things about these passages as we move forward, okay? The first passage that we're going to look at comes from the prophet Hosea, beginning in chapter 1 at verse 2. This is what it says. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, And she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Not over yet. After she conceived, after she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. 
All right, it's looking a little bleak at this point. What God wants to say through the prophet Hosea. He seems to have a message of judgment and rejection, telling the people of Israel, you're not faithful. And because you're not faithful, I'm no longer going to love you and I'm no longer going to be your God. Then verse 10. Here's a striking reversal. Yet, the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. This is a piece where we see through Hosea something of what God is bringing as a message to his people. And and right there, that last verse, there is a sudden shift that takes place here. A sudden shift from rejection to covenant faithfulness. And and it's it's a shift that comes in this passage without any explanation. Biblical commentators note that. In fact, some biblical commentators maybe ask the question, is there a fragment of this manuscript that's missing? Because it jumps so fast without any explanation at all from God rejecting his people to suddenly, but God will remain faithful and continue to call these people his children. A complete opposite reversal, just like that. That's what we see happening in this first chapter from Hosea. But let's keep moving forward. The next passage that we're going to look at comes from Psalm 85. Here's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 85. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquities of your people covered their sins. Two times in that verse, God talks, the, the psalmist talks about God's forgiveness. You forgave their iniquity. You covered all their sins. In the next verse, he's going to say two more times the way God forgives. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. So it begins in those first few verses with the psalmist recalling, remembering the way that God forgives his people. Four times in those two verses, the psalmist talks about, here's all the ways that God forgives people. He forgives iniquity. He covers their sins. He sets aside his wrath. He turns from his anger. And it's all past tense. God, this is what you have done. This is what we remember about you. This has been your character that has been revealed to your people that we have seen, that we have known. Then the psalm starts moving forward with words of hope based upon that. Continuing. Restore us again, God our Savior. Put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord. Grant us your salvation. I will listen to what the Lord, to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. 
Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Words of hope that come to us through that. Hope in what? Here is what that hope lands upon. These last verses in this psalm that talk about God's faithfulness. Listen to the poetry that the psalmist uses to talk about the faithfulness of God here. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. A psalm that talks about the way that God provides for his people and the hope that the psalmist has in that. A psalm that makes a couple of moves. It shifts from past forgiveness to present hope to fulfilled faithfulness. And we see that in the words of this psalm, that it begins with this past that they remember of the character of God being a God who is forgiving of his people. But what's the reason for the present hope? The reason for the present hope, in the words of that psalm, was he's asking the question, so how long till we see that again? When can we expect that same forgiveness? You see, it's almost as though the psalmist is acknowledging and declaring, those people that lived before us, they were disobedient and they messed up and you had to forgive them and we're in that same place. We've messed up too. We need your forgiveness too. So God, will you continue to forgive us the way that you forgave those before us? Will your forgiveness continue? But he says that in the words of this psalm, always holding on to the hope that, yes, God will. God will do that because God is faithful. So it makes that shift from the past forgiveness of God to the present hope that we have in God to the fulfilled faithfulness of God that comes to his people. See that movement that takes place here in Psalm 85. Now, one more. Now let's go to the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. And this one's printed in your bulletin as well. Here's a story that comes from Luke chapter 11. It says this. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't give up and give you anything. I tell you. Even though he will not get up to give, bread, to give you bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, 
he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This passage we see theme coming here from the Gospel of Luke, a theme that shows us in the way that Luke presents this story something of the same theme, but in a different way. This time, it's a rude and inconsiderate request for hospitality that's not ignored. Uh, let Let me put a little bit of context around how this story comes. There's a lot of directions we could go in this passage, and and maybe often when you read this passage from Luke 11, maybe we begin with the idea of prayer because that's where Jesus begins, right? It's it's the Lord's prayer that he presents there in in a shortened form here in Luke's gospel. So so maybe we read these words and we think, oh, this is a teaching of God from Jesus on prayer about how it is we should pray and what it is we should pray for and how that takes place and how prayer works. But together with these stories that come right after this, I want us to see this passage in a little bit different light. That maybe more than a passage about how to pray, this is a passage that teaches us who we are praying to. It's showing us something about who God is as the one who hears and receives our prayers. And it comes with this story, a story of a neighbor who comes with this rude and inconsiderate request for hospitality. Uh, Let's remember a couple things about how maybe that takes place, that in that time, uh, most of the families in Israel would have lived in houses that are one room. It's not like you had all these various rooms around your house. So, and it's not like every kid has their own bedroom or that there's any bedrooms at all. If a family, a small family, the usual family, would live in a one-room house, at night then they would put mats out on the floor and all the family would lay down and sleep there together. So here we see Jesus telling a story of, of someone who comes and knocks on the door at midnight. It's the middle of the night. The family's laying down there. The kids are asleep. That this is not a very considerate thing to do. And so the person in the house, the father there, has to ask the question, what do I do? If I get up and answer the door, then the kids wake up, everyone's awake, we lose sleep for the night. How are we going to do that? So he says, he gives the response, hey, we're already laying down and sleeping. But that's not what he does, though. He gets up and answers the door. He helps his friend, his neighbor, with that request, even though that came at a cost. We should remember this, too, that the request that came there was was for bread. Three loaves of bread. Can you give me three loaves of bread? 
because I've had a visitor come and I need to feed that visitor. Let's remember that uh, this is a time also when there's not supermarkets. It's not like 24-hour mire and I could just run and grab something quick or, or the late-night drive through that I can just get something quick to do that. Food is not available like that. There was no other place this person could go to find food except to knock on the door of a neighbor. And let's remember also that this is a time when you didn't have preserved food the way we do now. It's not as though families had a pantry that were full of things that would last for an indefinite period of time. Certainly, produce would not last that way. So fresh fruits and vegetables, when, when they came time to harvest, you ate them right then or did something with them right then because they wouldn't last Meat would be the same way. The only thing they grew that they could save long-term was grain. And because grain kept for a long time in storage like that, it meant that bread was a staple of their diet. Every day, they would eat bread, quite a bit of it, because it was the main thing that made up their diet. It was the thing that kept the longest. But not bread the way we think of it. Not like loaves of bread that are sliced for sandwiches, that kind of a thing. It's not like maybe you think of bread. Oh, bread, yeah, I get a loaf or two from the grocery store and it lasts me all week or a couple of weeks, that kind of a thing, but not much more than a couple weeks because then it starts going stale. No, no, in this time and in this day, they made bread every single day because it made up such a large part of their diet. And they used most of that bread that day. Perhaps keeping some, often keeping some overnight so that when they first woke up in the morning, you know, kids are hungry when they first wake up. I need a little bit of something for breakfast. There's some bread that's left that we can use for breakfast, but then we have to start the whole thing over again and make more bread. So, this neighbor who comes and knocks on the door in the middle of the night, first of all, waking up the entire family... And then saying, you know, that thing that you saved for your breakfast, can I have it? That thing that this is what your family's going to eat when you wake up, can I have that instead? It's not like, give me the extra, or do you have anything to spare? It's saying, give me what you were going to eat for breakfast. That's the request that comes. That's the consideration going on there. Let's remember this, though, too, that at that time, in the time of Jesus, there was within the culture a rule of hospitality, something that maybe we don't think of in the way that we deal today because we live in a time and a culture where people are so self-sufficient that we don't have to be reaching out and doing that kind of hospitality. But in that day and in that culture, if someone came to you with a request that they needed something, it was your cultural obligation to be hospitable, to show hospitality. So this, this father, sleeping with his family, his children, middle of the night, they've got breakfast for the morning, all of that, And then the request comes, a request for hospitality. And he's faced with a choice. What do I do? You know, the the request comes with such brash, inconsiderate rudeness that he had every right to stick with the first response. You know what? Go away. You're the one who should have thought of this before. Yeah, I know I'm, sh- I'm supposed to show hospitality, but you know what? 
you had a visitor come to you and you're supposed to show hospitality to that visitor as well. Why are you coming to me and making it my problem and putting me out, waking up my family, taking away my breakfast so that you can then show this hospitality that obviously you're not prepared to do? It's your problem. Why should it be my problem? That's his first response, right? The way Jesus tells it. Go away. We're already in bed. But it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. Because he remembers. He remembers. But it's my duty to be hospitable. I'm going to choose to show the hospitality that's needed, even though it's going to mess up the night of sleep for everyone here even though we're not going to have breakfast in the morning because I'm giving it away. I'm going to choose to show hospitality and choose to do the right thing in that, to show that for someone who needs it. What's the common thread here then? Consider this. The common thread that runs through these passages. Think of the way that this works. We we began with Hosea. Hosea, where the prophet is told, marry this promiscuous woman and have these children with awful names that basically tell the story of God is done with you. It's over. But then in that very last verse, with no explanation at all, it flips around. Guess what? Even though God had every single right to walk away, he stayed faithful. And then that passage from Psalms, the passage that says, God, I know you've been so forgiving to people in the past because they were so disobedient, and guess what? It looks like we're in that same place. Our disobedience is right there too, and I have nothing left but to hold on to the hope that you're going to stay faithful the way that you've always been. And then this passage from Luke in the Gospels, a passage where This neighbor had every right to say, you know what, forget it. Go away. You come here thinking you deserve something from me? You don't. But guess what? I'm going to give it to you anyway. I'm going to be faithful to what's expected, even though you're not. You see what we see in those as a common thread. We see that God always chooses to remain faithful to his covenant love. God always always chooses to remain faithful to his covenant love. In Hosea, when people were unfaithful to God and God had every right to turn and walk away, instead, God chooses to remain faithful. In the Psalms, when people were disobedient and they needed God's forgiveness again and again and again and again. And the psalmist asks, God, I know we're in that same place and I'm kind of holding on to the hope here that you're going to stay faithful to forgive. And he does. God remains faithful to his love. In the Gospels, when the people of God come before him with demands that are unreasonable, demands that God has no right to answer. No obligation whatsoever to respond when people come to him with demands like that. And yet, 
God chooses to remain faithful to his covenant love. It's the thread that we see woven through these passages. The thing that God is revealing, the the thing that he's saying about himself that comes to us through this. The thing that shows us who God is. In every one of these stories today, we see that God remains faithful to his covenant love to his people. And, And that's a good reminder for us today because that's counterintuitive to the world we live in, isn't it? That's not the way our world works. It's a good message for us to hear and hear again today because we go from this place and we live in a world that operates by rules that are completely the opposite of that, right? We go and we live in a world, a world that says, you know what, if there are people around you that do something wrong to you, you don't have to forgive them. Why should you? If they keep hurting you, don't forgive them. Hold a grudge. Get back at them. Have revenge. That's the world we live in. We live in a world where if people around you are unfaithful, if they lie and cheat and steal, you have no right that you have to remain faithful to them. In fact, you shouldn't. You should get them back. That's the world that we live in. That's the world that we go to out of this place. And that's why it's so good for us today to come and read and hear these words of Scripture that remind us, that's not God. God doesn't work like that. Even though we live in a world where that's what we expect. We expect people to treat us that way, and sometimes we're expected to treat others that way. And sometimes, sometimes maybe we lose sight of that and we catch ourselves thinking maybe God works that way too. Maybe the way that I see the world working around me and the way other people work in the world and the way I'm expected to work in the world, maybe sometimes I get stuck and and forget. God doesn't work that way. God chooses to remain faithful to his covenant love even when everything in the world around suggests and tells that he shouldn't. But he still does. He stays faithful through that. So what does that mean for us today? Let's think about how that comes to us as something that gives us a way to grab onto this and go forward. What does God's faithfulness mean for us today? I'm going to think about it in two ways. First of all, let's think about it like this. God and me. What does this faithfulness have to do with God and me and what that looks like? Well, it it starts with something like this. If, If you're the kind of person who thinks, you know what, I don't know that God could ever forgive me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the life that I've had. You don't know how far away I've been. Yeah, I know maybe some of you have stories about God's love in your life, but... I am so far down a road that I can't come back from that I'm not sure that the forgiveness you talk about is something that I could ever know. If that's you, God chooses to remain faithful to his covenant love. Or maybe you think to yourself, I don't know what I have to offer. 
Yeah, I, I don't know what it is that, that I can give to God that's of any value whatsoever. You know, I see people around me in church and, and they've got so many talents and they're good at so many things and they do so many wonderful things for, for the church and for his people and for ministry and I don't feel like I have anything I can give to that. So what good am I to God or to this place? God chooses to remain faithful to his covenant love. If you're in a season of life where maybe you're dealing with a hardship or health that's failing, and you're in that place of life where you think, you know what, maybe there was a time in my life where I was strong and I could do more, but now it seems like all I have to do is receive help from others. I'm feeling so helpless on my own, and I've got nothing to give, nothing to offer. God comes and he says, I'm going to choose to remain faithful to you in covenant love. You know what? This can flip the other way too. It can flip the other way because maybe there are people who think, you know what? I think I've got this Christian life thing figured out. I think I've figured out what it is that I've got to do to make myself a Christian. And and to that, God's response would be, hang on. You are not as righteous as you think you are. But I'm going to choose to stay faithful to you anyway. Or maybe you think, you know what, I've, I've got all the right boxes checked on, on my religious scorecard. You know, I do all the things. I go to church and I give and I pray and do my devotions and I help out with a ministry and it's all checked off. But God's response there is, you know what, You are not as good as you think you are. But I'm going to choose to be faithful to you anyway. You see, no matter how that comes to us, it all comes to us then through the shadow of the cross. That it's only in the cross of Jesus that we receive that covenant faithfulness of God. Not by anything we bring, not by anything we do, not by anything of who we are, but only because the righteousness of Christ has been placed upon us. We live in his righteousness. That's the faithfulness of God that shows up in our lives today. That's why we are here and can be in the presence of God because you and I, we are wearing the righteousness of Christ. And it's because of God's faithful covenant to us that it remains with us. So yeah, there's nothing we've done to deserve it. You don't deserve it. Or even if you feel like, I've done all the things and and the blessing of God that comes to me, it's because I've earned that reward. No. It's all through the cross that we have that. That's what God's faithfulness means for us today with God and me. But, but there's one more, one more to consider here. What about God and others? What does it look like in this faithfulness to recognize what it means for God and others? Because if that's the righteousness that comes to me, if that's the faithfulness of God that comes to me, if that's the love of God that embraces me, then You know what? That same righteousness, that same faithfulness, that same love extends to others as well. This shows me then that the way I see other people, the way I speak about other people, the way I act towards other people, it ought to be changed 
when I remember that God chooses to remain faithful to people, especially when it shows up in ways that I don't expect, the world does not expect, in ways that the world would never see as possible, that God chooses to remain faithful to those people too. And that ought to change the way that I approach other people. You want to make this real for yourself this week? Here's what you can do, all right? Think of a person, pick a person out, um, a person with whom you have quite a bit of tension in the relationship, maybe even bitterness. And, and don't make it someone who you don't actually know or doesn't know you, right? Make it a real relationship. I imagine there may be someone for each one of us who we could think of within our circle of relationships who we think there's kind of some tension going on in that relationship right now. You know, we're, we're not really on really good terms at the moment. Think of that person, and even though the world would tell you, would tell me, you know what? Maybe you have a right to be angry and upset. Maybe you have a right to push that person away. Maybe you have a right to say, I do not accept you and I judge you and I want nothing to do with you. Maybe though the world says that, begin by thinking this. God chooses to remain faithful with his covenant to that person too. Just the way he does to me. Just the way he does to you. That God chooses to remain faithful to his covenant to those people as well. Can that change the way I see that relationship? Can that change the way I I approach how I see that person? Speak about that person. Treat that person. Remembering that God is faithful to you too. And he will remain faithful to you. The same God who's faithful to me is also faithful to them. And we hold on to hope for that. Hope that God always keeps his covenant. Always stays faithful. Always gives us his love and equips us to be people who show that same love to others and echo that same faithful covenant that he's given. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and how you reveal yourself in your word to be faithful again and again and again. Lord, we are sorry for the times when perhaps we have forgotten that or let go of that for times when we felt like it's been our own action and, and our own good works that keep us faithful to you when, in fact, it is your gift on the cross that keeps your faithfulness to us. God, we're sorry for times when we've pushed other people away who, who we think maybe aren't worthy of being loved, but you're faithful to them too. God, may that Reminder, come to us today in ways that surprise us, awaken us, remind us that as you speak to us through your word, that you tell us you are always faithful to us. We thank you for that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.